0: from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Eamon Javers, who's a journalist for CNBC, covering what is happening here in Washington, D.C., and appearing on Business Day Programming. Previously, Javers was a White House reporter for Politico, where he covered the intersection of Wall Street and Washington. He conducted investigations of the administration's financial bailouts and economic stimulus efforts, broke news about the presidency of Barack Obama, and authored trend stories on Washington. Prior to joining Politico, Eamon was a Washington correspondent for Business Week magazine, wrote extensively about Washington lobbying, including the Jack Abramoff scandal, and previously unknown incidents of corporate espionage. He was also an on-air correspondent for CNBC, where he covered the intersection of business and politics. His articles have appeared in Fortune, Money, Congressional Quarterly, and Slate.com. He began his career at The Hill, a weekly newspaper, and for many people here in D.C., they know a lot about it, covering Congress. He's appeared as an analyst on each of the major broadcast networks, all the major ca- t- cable television news networks, NewsHour, Jim Lehrer on PBS, the BBC, National Public Radio, and he's also a regular pan- panelist on Washington Week with Grant Eiffel on PBS. He is the author of the book, Broker, Trader, Lawyer, Spy, The Secret World of Corporate Espionage, which was published in 2010. Thank you, Eamon, for taking the time to talk to us here. Hey, fine thanks for yourself. having
1: me. This is fun. I listen to this podcast all the time in my car. I have a horrendous Washington, D.C. commute, and so the podcast fills up that commute time exactly perfectly. So it's fun to be here and yeah, see like, where the magic actually happens. We're happy to
0: help your horrible commute. This we, room we, is
1: exactly the way I imagined it, by the way. I don't know if that's good <laughs> or bad, but that's
0: great. We're, we are a bit of a guerrilla radio organization here. Right. Um, I want to talk to you about what's been happening since your book was released. But before I do, I'd like to discuss the book itself a bit Uh, for the listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it. First, a little bit about you, because the way we we tend to sell books to listeners is learning a little bit about the author. Yeah, I hear you're a bit of a spy aficionado yourself. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's an area that I'm definitely interested in. And I kind of blundered into it in my career. I mean, as you just read that long, detailed bio, and thank you for reading all those things. (laughs) Um, You know, I cover the intersection of Wall Street and Washington, sort of the way business interacts with Washington. And when I was at Business Week magazine, I blundered into a case that was a case of corporate espionage. And I had no idea about it. I'd covered, you know, bad guys in Washington, corrupt lobbyists, corrupt officials, you know, all kinds of. Uh, skull dudgery of one kind or another, um, but this case struck me as so weird that I felt like <clears throat> I needed to dig into it a little bit more. And it was a case involving <clears throat> a heist of documents from KPMG, the global accounting firm. Um, and it turned out that the people who had stolen the documents were were a group of ex-British and US intelligence officials who uh, had went to work for a Russian oligarch after they left the intelligence world. And I read this uh, this lawsuit and the, the documents that were publicly available in the court system. And a lot of it was redacted, but some of it was available. And it just kind of blew me away because it didn't square with anything uh, about how I know Washington works. You know, I've been here a while and I felt like I kind of knew how the city worked. And I, I didn't realize that there were private firms with intelligence people on the staff who are veterans of global intelligence agencies who then go to work for hire after they leave the intelligence agencies. And that blew me away. So I did a lot of research into that particular case to find out what that was all about. It turned out that there was this exotic uh, effort to collect documents from KPMG in Bermuda, of all places. Uh, and the spies involved did uh, what's called a false flag operation mm-hmm. with the uh, one of the KPMG accountants. And that's spy lingo for <clears throat> when you tell somebody you're recruiting them for one purpose, but you're actually recruiting them for an entirely different purpose or an entirely different country. Um, That happened in this case. This is real stuff that actually happened in the world. Um, And then I started doing research into all of these private spy firms. And there are a bunch of them here in Washington, and there are a bunch around the world, including there is a spy firm here in Washington made up of former Soviet military intelligence officers who go to work for private corporations. And you
0: get a lot of corporations on here that have something in their title about like strategic advisory or risk management. Yeah, right. Risk
1: management or risk advisory is almost always code for private spies. Uh, And in the book, what I did was I sort of outlined who all these people are, what kinds of things they do everything from street level surveillance to um, uh, to high-level analysis of, of leadership uh, and uh, then I also trace the history of it going back to the Pinkerton cops in the right. 1800s and Alan Pinkerton's effort to create a private intelligence agency which in his day was working for the big railroads for American Express for Wells Fargo and what I discovered in doing all of that is that government intelligence and private intelligence in many ways are the flip side of the same coin. Right. So the private intelligence going back to Pinkerton, he was working for the large corporations and he had undercover spies working for him, doing things like breaking up strikes, finding bank robbers, uh, going after the Jesse James gang at one point. Uh, But then when the Civil War breaks out. Alan Pinkerton uh, turns his spy network over to the Union forces and goes to work for a Union General and sends those same corporate spies now into the Confederacy to impersonate uh, various people in the Confederacy and gain intelligence uh, that was useful for the war effort. After the war, they flip again and go back into private espionage. Right. That's the same pattern that we see now. You see a lot of people go to work for their government, then go to work in business, uh, and then sometimes go back. And, and they toggle back and forth to the point which, at which I'm told, I've never been to Langley, but I'm told that at the CIA cafeteria, there are so many private contractors that they have to differentiate between the Blue Badgers and the yeah. Green Badgers, one group of employees there working for the government, another group working for private contractors that are private spy firms that work for the government.
0: Well, there's a point during the 2000 aughts or whatever you want to call the first decade of the 2000s where there were more private contractors working for the intelligence community than there were government workers working for the intelligence community. And
1: so when you think about corporate espionage, you have to really break it down into two categories in your mind. One is those uh, private spies who work for private corporations who contract with the U.S. government or other governments to do government style intelligence. So uh, I was told that in the initial invasion of Iraq in 2003, for example, there were private contractors who were actually designating the targets for the bombing runs in the shock and awe campaign. Mm -hmm. Those were private employees of private companies who were you know, looking at the intelligence and trying to figure out which building should we hit on day one. Uh, that's sort of a government style thing. And then there are private contractors like the one I wrote about in the book that are former government officials who go to work for the highest bidder.
0: Well, in many cases, that highest bidder is a, a Russian oligarch or a Middle sure. Eastern oil mogul.
1: Sure. It's kind of hard to see
0: the amount of money that's being paid to some of these private contractors, how there's no conflict of interest, even though they're not currently, and we'll talk about the ones that are currently in the intelligence service but the ones right. that are even ex agents money eventually especially if you're taking institutional knowledge of your organization right. and and put they wouldn't be hiring you otherwise if you were just a guy they wouldn't be hiring you so you're bringing something with you how how does that mesh especially talking it's, about it's the awkward. middle east yeah
1: it's awkward i mean you're right to point it out i mean you know who is the boss in my experience in life just living on this planet the guy who signs the checks is the boss Right. And so when you take your intelligence, talents and skills and go to work for somebody who's signing the checks, that's the boss. When I was writing the book, I interviewed John Brennan, uh, who then went to the CIA. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interestingly enough, Brennan, at the time I interviewed him, was had flipped out of the government. He was at the CIA, was now working at a private corporation called, I believe, the Analysis Corporation was his private firm in Virginia. Uh, He was in the private sector at that point, and he was about to go back to run the CIA. But at the time, we didn't know that. And I asked him about people who leave the CIA and who leave intelligence and go to work for whoever in the private sector. And he said, look, I just hope that they bring their ethics with them because there right. are things that are appropriate to do in government service uh, that are you know, maybe nefarious seeming, but because you're doing them for a patriotic reason are appropriate, that would not be appropriate to do in a corporate setting. But there's nobody overseeing this. There's no the CIA doesn't have any way to police all these people who've left uh, to find out what they're doing or who they're doing it for. Right. And they can't track them because these people have constitutional rights. And then ironically, Brennan then goes back in from private from the private sector to run the CIA while he was at the analysis corporation. I did a story on this for CNBC which is up on our website at cnbc.com. If you Google Google around, you can find it. Uh, Brennan, the Analysis Corporation was a private intelligence firm that uh, was bought out by a British securities firm, what they call a Guns, Gates, and Gurkhas firm, That provides physical security in battlefield type mm-hmm. environments. Um, that office, at the same time that Brennan, the future head of the CIA, was working in Virginia for that company, it also had an operation in Beijing that was selling uh, security and analysis services to the Chinese government uh, in Iraq. So you know, where are the loyalties right. in that global intellig- private intelligence right. world? you know, you got me. And Brennan's answer seemed to be, well, it's up to the individual to maintain his own personal ethics. And they said that the CIA veterans at at the analysis corporation were walled off from the Chinese uh, operation. But ultimately, all of the revenue that all of them were generating was pumping up to the same corporate headquarters in London. So that's the world that we're in now.
0: Well, the IC has instituted a rule recently that if you leave the agency, you have to wait a year Before you can work for one of these corporations, the working with the yeah cooling off period. If you retire, then you can immediately go on right. If you put in your time, then you can immediately go work for these. But you can't leave to immediately start working for a private corporation. So at least they're. They're trying to create some kind of a cushion, some kind of wiggle room. They,
1: they were a lot of the CIA leadership. I'm told was kind of astonished by one of the things that I revealed in my book, which was that uh, at some points they are allowing active duty serving CIA like officers moonlight. to moonlight in the yeah. private sector, and this is because of the point you raise, which is they don't pay enough money in the government to compete with these private sector jobs. These guys can triple or quadruple their salaries in the private sector they are desperate to keep them working inside the agency and keep them happy Uh, and so at one point I revealed in the book that uh, there was a private spy firm which specialized in lie detection what they call deception detection these are guys with psychological backgrounds who listen to global leaders you know Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi's speeches and analyze using linguistic and body language bases whether or not they're lying or holding something back or hiding something. Uh, Those same people then formed a private firm, went out into the private sector, and went working for big financial firms and hedge funds. And they applied the same techniques to listening to corporate earnings calls. When a CEO would come out every quarter and say, here's how our performance was, we sold this many units, and next quarter we're hoping to expand into these uh, new markets. The CIA veterans were listening to those calls, analyzing them using their Secret sauce. Right. And then selling that information to hedge funds and saying, hey, he's lying about this or he, he's not as confident as he'd like to make you think about the number of units. All of that stuff is highly monetizable information for a hedge fund. The CIA was allowing its active duty officers to go work there on weekends and furlough time and extra time that they had built up because of the paycheck. And so that's this yeah. question, is where, do, where is the line, where should that line be?
0: Well, I mean, even if you're not revealing secrets, which we're assuming they're not, we'll be given the benefit of the doubt. Sure. Innate knowledge of the world, innate knowledge of how the country's working and of the secrets that they have can play a role, yeah. even if it's done implicitly or, or not. You know, here's what I know, if you're kind of like, don't do that. You know, that's not you're, a good right. idea. Don't invest in this African country because I know some stuff about them like, that you don't. Uh,
1: and there are people who do exactly that. You know. Right, uh, ex-CIA people who uh, give advice on, you know, risk management in foreign markets, emerging markets, and that sort of thing, and who who use their contacts that they built up, the people that they know who are in their rolodex, uh, now to go to work for an oil company, mining interest, uh, financial firm, whatever. Um, and so these are really important questions, and I don't. It doesn't seem to me that anybody is really addressing them in a no. square on.
0: Well. I, I want to move on from your book to to more modern-day stuff, but before I do...
1: The book is available on Amazon.com, by the way. And, and
0: yes, everywhere great (laughs) books are sold. Get the plug in. Uh, Before I do, and to give one last great plug to the book, there's a chapter in your book that is, I would say, is straight out of a spy movie, but no one would believe it if somebody showed up with a screenplay, and that's The Chocolate Wars. Yeah, right. Can, can you talk a little, because I I think this will sell the book to many, of our, our listeners have a very interesting sense of humor, and I mean that in all the wonderful ways. Twisted that you can people, say, right? Oh yeah, yeah right. and the, we love them for it. Uh, I, I think, I feel like this story may may sell the book to some of them. Can you yeah, talk about Yeah, this a is the, the
1: battle, long-going battle in the chocolate industry between Nestle and Mars. Uh, and I'll refer you to the chapter for details, but it turned out that one of the corporations was spying on the other one uh, in order to get details of a new chocolate product that was about to be rolled out that people thought was going to revolutionize the chocolate industry. Uh, And it turned out that they had ex-Secret Service officers uh, who were on the payroll of one of these private uh, intelligence firms who were uh, spying on the corporate retreat of the other company in order to gain any intelligence they could about what was happening there, including, you know, dumpster diving right. at the hotel rifling where these guys the were staying, mm-hmm. rifling through the trash, you know, sitting. Uh, these guys were trained. They. Uh, I was told by a source that uh, they were placing agents at, at restaurant tables and at the bar next to the executives of the chocolate company to overhear things. And apparently there's a whole system, which I didn't know anything about, of there's an art to sitting at a table with another agent across from you and having an entirely fictional conversation back and forth while you're actually listening to and memorizing the conversation of the people next to you. There's an art there's a, a mental art to doing that. And that's what these guys were doing. They were literally spying on chocolate executives to get the next big thing in the chocolate business. And it was huge revenue for the private spy company, and huge stakes in the global right. candy industry, right? So you think it's the silliest thing in the world. And to the spies, their attitude is sort of, you know, this is great. Nobody's shooting at me. You know, nothing's. no one's going to die as a result of this. And I can make a lot of money and be home at five to coach my kid's soccer team.
0: Well, you, people think of the movies and the sexy side of spying where you're running around in tuxedos playing Texas Hold'em and wooing women. Not standing in a dumpster up to your waist, going right. through uh, old chocolate wrappers and other things like that.
1: Right, right, right.
0: What what, what I'd like to talk about here is looking at some of the major changes that have occurred in the last six years since your book was published. Um, and, and one of the big ones, of course, I think, is the internet and the ability to break into this stuff through cyber. So I'm gonna we're, we're, yeah. we're going to get to that in a second. Um, but involved in that question is the idea that other countries now can get really important national security information from private firms. Yep. Whether it's hacking Lockheed about the F-35 or General Atomics about the Predator drone. I mean, if you look at a picture of the Predator next to a picture of the Pterodactyl drone, which is the Chinese, they're a bolt-for-bolt replica.
1: Reminds you of the uh, Soviet space shuttle, right? Which right. Is, hey, wait a second.
0: And, and so, I, you know, even... If you want to talk about protecting servers, the government doesn't do a great job of it either, with the OPM hack. But we're not, sure. we're talking about corporate espionage here, to where you're looking at these 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 very very wealthy companies, Target and others, that are getting hacked and losing potentially billions of dollars. Uh, of revenue because of the weakness of their ability to do counterintelligence in this yeah. case?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's a national security issue, uh, leaving aside you know, hacking specific military defense pieces of intelligence. But just the overall economic leadership that right. the United States has in the world is under attack right now by hackers from around the world, particularly China, but also Russia, Iran, and other places around the world. Uh, in the book, I had to make some choices. So one of the things I didn't focus on at all was Economic espionage by nation states. Right. Right. Uh, you know, there are always these rumors going back to the 60s that the French had bugs on the Concorde and were listening and picking up executives' conversations and things. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that would be an example of a country doing commercial espionage on a corporation for nation-state gain. That has exploded in the era of the Internet and cybersecurity. And now what we're seeing is a concerted effort by the Chinese in particular to leapfrog their economic status in the world by stealing American intellectual property and technology uh, in every possible way. You talk about the chocolate wars and how silly that, that seems. But if you go to the Department of Justice's website, you can see case after case where uh, federal officials have arrested Chinese agents who are out in fields in Iowa digging up seeds.
0: Yeah, the to, corn caper. Right, right,
1: right, right, to get details on how American agricultural giants are engineering the latest generation of seeds for an agricultural advantage. But it's it's the color of a white particular kind of white paint that, that uh, people are using in industrial coatings. All of those things that seem so obscure are really important in terms of rolling out new products, new technologies, lowering the cost of things, and being competitive on on the global scale that's what's at stake for the United States right now, in addition to all the stuff you're talking about, which is the kind of spying that has always gone on, right. where you know Lockheed Martin in the, in the 70s, or whatever it was called in the 70s, was under assault by the Soviets, presumably, who were trying to get in and get documents. The problem was they had to physically carry the documents out of the building, and you can only stuff so many documents under your jacket. Right. And you had now, to infiltrate
0: the building in the first place. Now you can sit on a couch somewhere.
1: You can steal terabits mm. and be sitting in the Ukraine or in Moscow and do mm. it. And it's it's so much more dangerous because you can steal everything.
0: Well, I, the, the great comparison is if you look at two famous American spies slash leakers or whistleblowers, whatever you think of Snowden, is the ability of John Walker back in the 70s to steal, you know, eventually would be hundreds of thousands of documents. But it took him months and months and he had, had a huge spy ring, whereas Edward Snowden plugged a jump drive into a computer yeah. and downloaded millions of documents. In, right you know, 30 seconds and put him in his pocket.
1: And I think yeah. the jury is still out on snowden i mean yeah. i'd like to see a lo- i 'd like to know a lot more about who he was, what he was thinking, why he did what he did I mean there are you know u s intelligence vets who think he was an operative for the Soviet, yeah. for the Russian government um, you know he of course denies it and said he was, a, he was a person who did this for conscience reasons so but in this era of cyber espionage you've got a lot of different adversaries that you didn 't have to really worry about before I mean you have the nation states but you also have these sort of ideological adversaries who are sort of free-floating global collectives like WikiLeaks or Anonymous yeah. or an Edward Snowden who's mobilized by a certain type of ideology to go out and hit a private company. Remember, Snowden hit a private company that he right. was working at, um, not not necessarily while he was inside the government did he do this. And that's a, a threat that... that uh, companies haven't faced before. And then you're also seeing the kind of nation state threat that we've never seen before. When you look at the North Koreans hacking into Sony, uh, stealing all of the Sony documents and then humiliating Sony executives to the point where some of them were drummed out of their jobs by releasing all these embarrassing emails back and forth. I mean, God help me if anybody got access to my emails. I mean, it would be very embarrassing, right? Because no. you say snarky things, you offend this one or that one, uh, all that. You, you kind of have this thought when you're in corporate America that it's like semi-private at least, but it's not, especially if you've got a nation state that wants to get it and use it for its own leverage purposes.
0: Well, really what your book does and what, what we've talked seen about the last six years really forces a conversation about the relationship between government and private industry. I mean, and that, yeah. that seems to be one of the most fundamental questions. And this is, I think, especially true for for leaders in the government and leaders in Silicon Valley, technical leaders, uh, technology leaders. Um, and I think that's why you saw Ash Carter spending a lot of time going out to Secretary of Defense, spending a lot of time going out to California to talk to these leaders. Uh, yeah, I,
1: I interviewed Secretary C- Carter in San Francisco when he was out there in Silicon Valley to ask him about this You know, in the wake of the Apple-FBI fight over what is the appropriate line that – you know, where should American companies cooperate with U.S. law enforcement and intelligence and where should they not? And Carter was very concerned as Secretary of Defense that Silicon Valley is the, the engine of innovation in the United States. And he feels that we can't lose them in terms of, uh, you know, sort of loyalty and being on the right. team with the United States. And he was out there to try to mend fences and build bridges in the wake of the Apple FBI thing. It, it was a fascinating conversation to have with him because this moment is so uh, fraught.
0: And there's a really interesting clearance debate when it comes to cybersecurity. Is it, you want to have this partnership between the government and private industry. But at what point or how much do you clear their workers, do you clear their executives to get information, access to information that could potentially protect their companies? How much do you read them in to
1: right. what
0: NSA is picking up overseas about other hackers? How much do you bring them? There's an article. I don't recall if it was a CNBC article or somewhere. something. I'm sure you picked up on it. This idea that there is a little bit of uh, people are upset in government that some of the CEOs of these companies aren't getting cleared fast enough. And they're yeah, not clearing. I wrote that story. That, that, yeah. There you go, all right. Yeah,
1: it was an interesting debate, right? Because uh, some of the tech company executives say they do not want to get a security clearance from the US government because they want to be independent of the government and not have the image that they're beholden, partly because they have enormous markets in China and Russia and around mm-hmm. the world. And they want to preserve uh, this image of independence from the US government. They don't want to be seen as toadies for US intelligence. So some of them are resisting getting security clearances. Some some of them can't get security clearances because of drug escapades and other things they've done in their youth that, that make them non-qualified. So there's a real tension there. Whereas a You know, the World War II generation, these issues just didn't come up. A a lot of those CEOs and executives just viewed it as part of their duty as corporate leaders to be simpatico with the U.S. government. That has fractured.
0: Yeah. Well, Bill Donovan, when he created the OSS, pulled people in from all. I mean, there wasn't a centralized intelligence agency at that point. So he had to pull in civilians. But it was the the leaders in government. And that's where your expertise is as a
1: nation. Right. And now a lot of those people would say no to an effort like that.
0: So the, the, the public-private partnership in the military has been around for decades, right? DARPA was created back a couple of decades ago, and there's always been this military-industrial complex argument. It, it's a, it's more recent in intelligence, but you do now have the creation of IARPA, which is the intelligence version of DARPA, where they're let's say they're farming information out, but they've also created uh, InQTel yeah, uh, which is a first time ever. It's a, it's a it uses CIA supplied funds. Essentially, do venture capital to, to get, make strategic investments in startup companies yeah. that may down the road create technological innovation that can be helpful.
1: And Incutel right. started uh, here in the DC area, they were in Virginia. I went and interviewed in the 90s the first director of Incutel. Uh, who was a private sector executive. I think he came from a toy company, if I remember right, uh, and came over to sort of run this effort to invest in intelligence-type technology that the intelligence community broadly thought it might need to foster or might need access to. And part of that is because in the first dot-com wave, and, and even more so now, uh, you're seeing the sense among people in the intelligence community that they don't have uh, the top tech talent at all anymore. I mean, the government sort of assumed a technological advantage maybe generation ago or two, uh, but now they assume that they are technologically behind. And you saw that really playing out in the Apple versus FBI thing, where the FBI said, even our top people that we have on this can't break into this phone. The technology doesn't Live in the government; it right. lives in the private sector, and so in Qtel and all the o- these other efforts are efforts to at least catch up or or tread water or stay somewhat competitive, and have some of that technology reside inside the government or have the government get access to it.
0: it there, there seems to be, on face, and I haven't investigated this as much as I'd like to, uh, a bit of a transparency issue here because you do see stories like there was a story from a couple days ago that a uh, a, gr- a credit Swiss group. Uh, who are bankers overseas? Uh, they they had a venture partnership with a a company called Palantir Technologies in Silicon Valley.
1: That and they're it, here in DC too. And, and no. it
0: sounds like it's just a company and a company working together, and they're basically trying to find rogue employees before they do insider trading and harm the bank and do other things like that. Except that Palantir Technologies is a company created by InQtel. So right. there's this.
1: And has a lot of intelligence veterans. Yeah. I mean, when you go in their offices, I've been in their offices here in D.C. And I've been past, they have enormous facilities in Silicon Valley. I've, I've been to, to their offices, but not inside in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, they have enormous connections. And it's all that back and forth that I was talking about going back to Alan Pinkerton. People who were in the government, who are now in the private sector. How close are they to the government? Where are their loyalties now that they're in the private sector? All of that is sort of a gray area. And and to me the the most fascinating gray area that we've seen in in recent weeks is the this whole case of the Panama Papers, which was not to jump ahead. No, I know no, you, you perfectly to to that, jumped but, ahead. It's uh... but to get to get to this idea that the Panama Papers ultimately was corporate espionage by somebody, that somebody persons unknown cracked into the servers of a tiny little law firm in Panama City, Panama, that specialized in creating anonymous shell corporations for persons around the world to use for whatever purposes they wanted to use them for. Uh, I went down to Panama City a couple weeks ago and sat down with Jurgen Mosak, who was the co-founder of this firm, which is called Mosak Fonseca. Um, And I was standing on the street in Panama City outside this law firm, looking at it, and it just struck me that whoever pulled this off must have been extremely sophisticated, not only to hack into the servers and get all this data and then send it out to the world, but also to even know that this right. firm was there. Yeah. Mossack, Panama City is a huge city with skyscrapers and a, a big bustling business downtown. Mossack Fonseca is not in one of those skyscrapers. It's not in the big banking buildings. It's off in another little neighborhood that's not in the main area of Panama City at all. It's in a small, obscure building on a street opposite a couple of bars and nightclubs. It, is, uh, it looks like any kind of mid-size, you know, suburban office park type building that you might see. It's as obscure as you can get. And somebody knew that inside the servers of that firm, right. on that block, in that city, in that country, were the details that would humiliate and embarrass uh, Vladimir Putin and David Cameron and Spanish officials and uh, officials around the world. How did they know that? Who was it who pulled that off? Somebody really knew what they were doing.
0: I mean, that's the classic targeting question when you talk about intelligence is, is what do we go after, and in that case, the information that may have been the key to everything wasn't the actual millions of documents that were stolen. It was the physical existence of these documents in this little dinky firm down there. Maybe right. kind of the the fun story that that you and others get to uncover and, as we move forward.
1: And some of some of the the details in this again are the kinds of things that you couldn't do in a spy movie because it would seem too hokey and too obvious, right? I mean, so Jürgen Mossack is in Panama City. Has been his Run, been running this firm for decades, uh, along with his partner. He is a German by ethnicity. His father uh, was a German soldier during World War II. He was Waffen SS uh, and survived the war, left Germany in the 1960s with young Jürgen in tow and moved to Panama City. And according to some of the media reports, Jürgen Mosak's father offered to spy for the CIA against the Cubans based in Panama City. And that's how he sort of navigated mm-hmm. the post-war war World. So now we've got the son of an SS soldier who spied for the CIA against Castro Running a law firm in Panama City that does shell corporations for Vladimir Putin's associates I mean, how weird is
0: that? Yeah, and I read that their cybersecurity was terrible apparently The data security noted experts noted that the company Hadn't been using encrypted emails. They'd have been right. sending emails essentially in the clear And they were running old, like, years-long programs with vulnerabilities that had been known by Kapersky Labs and and even McAfee that, you know, they said, don't run these anymore. I mean, if you had just just allowed your computer to automatically update your McAfee, you maybe would have prevented some of this from happening, but they were so antiquated protecting all this incredibly important information, Right. that it might have been very easy. That's why I, I mentioned like, the difficulty is finding out where the stuff was. It doesn't sound like getting the information was all that difficult.
1: Yeah, and, and the lesson I take from this is sort of the banality of global corruption, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, even global corrupted uh, kleptocrats need to have back office uh, data somewhere. They need to have somebody creating the paperwork and shuffling it around in an HR department. And all that was in Panama. And somebody was smart enough to go hit it. And then to leak it to a newspaper that would take that global and to leak it to a German newspaper first that then worked with a global consortium uh you know there are people I interviewed uh, a guy named Brad Birkenfeld who was a Swiss banker who later became a whistleblower who served time in prison for his uh, for his Swiss banking violations uh, and then was paid a hundred million dollars by the u s government for his uh, information that he gave the u s government uh, and Birkenfeld is convinced that the CIA was behind the Panama Papers hack. Now, I've seen people say it was the CIA. I've seen people say it was in a reverse double twist of logic. It was Putin himself right. who did it. Uh, you know, uh, all, all kinds. Of, some have suggested that there was a hedge fund that, that did this for competitive reasons. You know, I, one of the most fascinating global mysteries going right now to me is who did this and why.
0: What is that? Well, they're calling it John Doe right now, essentially, because no right. one really knows who this is and to give the listeners an idea of of the the wide reaching impact of this Edward Snowden of course had to chime in on this and he called it the biggest leak in the history of data journalism, which yeah. for him saying that, that's pretty extraordinary.
1: And as a journalist, that, te- that tells you a little bit about where we're going in this business, right? I mean, it used to be that somebody you had to meet somebody in a parking garage like uh, Bob Woodward in Deep Throat. Now right. you have to be able to get a secure download of terabytes of information and be able to handle that in a sophisticated way to prevent your, your own uh, servers from being attacked. It's a technological battle now as much as it is a source cultivation battle.
0: So... So the Panama Papers hack was a covert action and with covert actions. We want to talk about impact. So for those of us out there that don't who think this is an interesting story, have been kind of sort of following along on it. What what is the long term impact economically, politically of the release of these documents?
1: Well, it's been embarrassing to a lot of people, right? One of the things that we learned was that David Cameron, who in, who's the prime minister of Britain, who has been a crusader against offshore tax avoidance, turns out, oops, yeah. his father, who was a very wealthy man, had shell corporations based in Panama that were created by this law firm. Uh, it turns out that Vladimir Putin's best buddy from growing up, who's a, a concert level cellist, suddenly has access to shell corporations in Panama, which are hiding apparently millions and maybe billions of dollars in Russian assets. Oops, where did that come (laughs) from? Uh, A number of Spanish officials have been forced to resign, and officials around the world have been embarrassed. On May 9th, uh, they are going to release, I believe it's May 9th, uh, the details of this database in a searchable format, so people will be able to go through and do keyword searches for these shell corporations and find out exactly what happened. But the lesson to me overall is that this is just one tiny law firm. Walking around Panama City, there are much bigger law firms than Mossack Fonseca, the one that got hit, that are doing exactly this business. There are enormous banks in Panama City. If you got into one of those banks, what would you learn? If you got into one of those law firms, what would you learn? In Switzerland, in Singapore, I was going to say Panama Israel. is just one country and right. many of these that are tax havens. So, just one firm in one city, in one country. When this is happening in, in tax avoidance jurisdictions around the world, the secrets are out there. They are in these servers around the world. And I think the lesson is that it, in the post-Snowden era, call it, it is getting much more difficult to hide this kind of stuff. Uh, and even powerful people like Vladimir Putin can't be sure that they're going to be able to protect all their secrets going forward.
0: Unless he was the one that actually hacked. His Unless own. he was a yeah, <laughs> double,
1: triple gainer. You know. Hey, so, anything's possible, okay. right?
0: Well, Amon Javers he has to leave to go actually go on air for CNBC. But uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. He is the author of Broker Trader Lawyer Spy: The Secret World of Corporate Espionage, which is available on Amazon and everywhere else. That's right. That you want to find a book if you want to read about the chocolate wars, which I highly recommend. Uh, again, if someone had showed up in Hollywood with a screenplay, he would have been laughed out of the room because it's so ridiculous but it's so real at the same time I
1: I talked to the guys who did it, it's amazing
0: Well thank you, Eamon, for taking the time to join us today on SpyCast Thanks, this is fun We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org Thank you And we will see you next month.